And we've come to the 21st chapter in this book, Luke chapter 21. One day you will stand before Jesus Christ. You may not believe it, you may not live in watchful anticipation of that day, but God's Word reveals that you will stand before Jesus Christ. And it is my hope and prayer, it is the focus of my pastoral labors among you that we as a church will really believe that that day is coming, that we will sense it, that we will understand it. It is my prayer that we will watch for that day with keen anticipation. And it is my hope that each one of us will be able to stand in the presence of Christ with joy and with confidence. I want that for us. And I want it, as I believe most of us do, for the glory of Jesus Christ. You will stand in His presence someday. But I think that if we are indeed to stand before Jesus Christ with confidence, we need more than repeated exhortations to remember what is coming in our future. That is too small of a vision. We must learn to see the bigger picture. We must discern that every second of human history and every atom in the physical universe comprise a theater in which Jesus Christ is being vindicated. The sovereign God of heaven and earth is steering the course of history and natural history to a place of submission to the lordship of the crucified and risen Christ. You're not going to hear that on the evening news. You're not going to read about it in Time magazine. It is not even going to be heard on conservative talk radio. We must learn by faith to trust God's Word that human history is a grand story in which the victorious Christ will finally stand forth as victor. And the physical universe will participate in this grand vindication. So it is not merely that we have an appointment before the throne of Jesus Christ. That is true. But it is also true that the destiny of the entire universe is final submission to the victorious Christ. And that means, Christian, have no doubt, that means that this fallen world is not the place where Christ's followers realize health and wealth and fame and ease. This is not the theater for that. It means that this world is one dangerous place for Christ's followers because this world is a theater of divine judgment. And until we see this bigger agenda, we will struggle to keep our eye of faith fixed on our personal accounting before Jesus Christ. I believe we struggle with apathy and we struggle being blinded by this world around to think of our meeting with Jesus Christ as some future event off there of some accounting before God that we just like to forget about. Maybe once in a while somebody brings it to our attention. We must see the bigger picture. And we learn this bigger picture from the instructions of Jesus Christ. It's not just about you standing before Jesus. It's about everything. In his last week of earthly ministry, Jesus has entered Jerusalem on the foal of a donkey to the passionate praises of his followers. He's cleansed the temple. Cleanse it of greedy merchants, an act of religious war against the Sadducees who controlled the temple and profited from its service. And Jesus has taken up this daily debate with the religious leaders of Israel. They have done everything they can to crucify him, to catch him in his words, to turn him over to the authorities. They have failed as Jesus has answered every assault with his teaching. 
They've thrown their best at him, but he has shown that he has God's approval in his answers. But as he has repeatedly prophesied, the leaders of Israel continue to work. They have thoroughly rejected him, and they will soon hang him from a Roman cross. Although Luke does not record this, Jesus ends his ministry at the temple with a scathing rebuke of the leaders of Israel. His ministry is finished to the nation here. And surrounded by his disciples, Jesus leaves the temple complex, and it was quite a complex. I'm going to spend a little bit of time here to try to visualize this for us. If you can just imagine this warm, sunny day in Palestine. The historian Josephus records that the temple was constructed of massive white marble stones, most of which were the size of a semi-truck trailer. Some were as long as 67 feet. That is one stone carved out of, this, out of a ledge of rock was longer than this auditorium. It was a massive structure. And you can imagine that these Galilean fishermen were rather impressed with it. Josephus says that this place gleamed so white that it looked like a mountain of snow from the distance. And he records as well that the doors were of gilded gold and the gates were of gold and silver. And on the sides of these white marble walls were gifts that people had brought and given and Herod had given to this temple project. And there was gold and silver uh, artwork that was on the sides of these white walls. He says that in the sunlight you would have to avert your eyes from the gleam that came from this building. It was Israel's crown jewel. It was King Herod's ambitious reconstruction program. Remember, the temple had been rebuilt by Zerubbabel, but King Herod had really done a makeover on it. it when Jesus walked past this temple outside of it with his disciples, the project had been going on for 46 years, and it wasn't done yet. This was one of the wonders of the ancient world. And as I mentioned, quite impressive to a few fishermen from northern Galilee. And so they say in verse 5, some of his disciples were remarking about how the temple was adorned with beautiful stones and with gifts dedicated to God. There's those silver and gold decorations on the walls. Now what Jesus says next is utterly shocking. He says in verse 6, as for what you See here, the time will come when not one stone will be left on another. Every one of them will be thrown down. A stunning prophecy. No one could possibly make sense of it. Mark tells us that Jesus now journeys out of the city, he crosses the Cadron Valley, he begins to ascend back up again the Mount of Olives, that, at which place you can overlook the temple and there, Peter and Andrew, James and John, perhaps they're resting, but they get a hold of Jesus and they ask him, what does all of this mean? They get together with him and they ask this question, verse 7, when will these things happen and what will be the sign that they are about to take place? It's a sobering prophecy. This massive, beautiful building torn down, not one stone remaining on another, Perhaps a figurative statement, but a picture of great judgment, if not literal. What does this mean, Jesus? Two questions here. In one sense, it's one question with two parts. But when will the temple be destroyed? And how can we know this destruction is coming? Now, as Jesus answers this question, he delivers to us here one of the most difficult discourses of his ministry. It has greatly exercised interpreters to this day. It's not easy to unfold, and this isn't going to be light material for us. I say this to you. You might say, I'm not sure I'm going to catch all this, or I'm not getting all this. I still don't, and greater scholars than me still don't. It's going to take some work. It's a difficult passage. But I think what my hope here is just to lay it out for you and what Jesus is teaching, that we might get the bigger picture whether we have every nuance of every detail or not will not be the agenda for today. 
But Jesus does not specifically answer the when question. That makes it a little bit difficult. They say, when is this going to happen? And he really never says. The second thing that makes it difficult is he answers more than they ask. And so it becomes a challenge to us sometimes to know exactly what he is saying when he discusses the destruction of the temple and something that seems to be beyond the destruction of the temple. In fact, the key to understanding this section of Scripture is to realize that Jesus is looking to a near fulfillment of his prophecies and a farther fulfillment. And just to bring us from our perspective to fill in the details, that first fulfillment is 70 A.D., when the temple of Jerusalem in Jerusalem was indeed destroyed. The further fulfillment is yet future to us and speaks of the end time. Now why does Jesus mix this all together? And in Matthew and Mark, it's much more mixed together than it is here. Luke, in fact, I think works kind of hard for his readers to try to keep the two events separate. But in Jesus' original account, none of the three gospel writers are giving us every word. They pick and choose pieces of the account, of, of the discourse. In Luke's, it's clear when he's talking about the first and when he's talking about the second event. In Matthew and Mark, it's all mixed together. Why does Jesus do that? In part, he does that because of the understanding of how prophecy works and the understanding, ultimately, that God is the author of history. Every artist leaves certain clues that it's his or her work, don't they? As our art majors work on, in studying some of the great artists of history, they note some of the distinctives of the artist. Or maybe there's an author who writes a book and we notice some of the distinctives of the uh, turns of phrase and figures of speech that this writer will use. Every creator leaves something of their own stamp on their work. And when we understand that God is the author of history, history, we realize that he continues to work in the similar patterns through history. And so what takes place in A.D. 70 is a reflection and a preparation for what will happen in the end times. Now, it literally drives interpreters crazy to figure out sometimes when Jesus is talking about one and when he's talking about the other. But some of that might be our desire to think about what we don't have to think about. To some degree, some of these things apply to both. Now, not all of them, and we have to work through those distinctions. But if you're following me, 70 A.D. is in Jesus' view, but so is the end time. Now, Luke makes it fairly simple for us, much easier than Matthew and Mark, to determine which is which. He'll look at the first event first and the second event following that. But what Jesus does, first of all here, is to tell the disciples not to answer their question directly, but to talk to them more about what, I might, what we might call the gathering cloud signs of Jerusalem's fall. Some would view this as not even signs at all. This is what's not a sign. But I like to look at it more for reasons we won't go into here, but looking at it more as the gathering cloud. In other words, these are things that are going to be part of a fallen world and the judgment of God as it comes, but these are not specific signs of the fall of Jerusalem. Remember, they've asked, when will this temple be destroyed? Verse 8, he replied, Watch out that you are not deceived, for many will come in my name, claiming, I am he, and the time is near. Do not follow them. False messiahs will arise, and the disciples are warned not to be led astray by them. Jesus will not even return for the destruction of the temple. That's something they couldn't have understood at this point. And at the end time judgment, no one will have to go running and looking for Messiah. Remember chapter 17, 23, and 24? You won't have to go hunt him down. It'll be clear to all. So, people will come saying, Messiah has come, the end has arrived. Disregard it. Don't worry about it. Verse 9. When you hear of wars and revolutions, do not be frightened. These things must happen first, but the end will not come right away. These are the gathering clouds. These are the storm clouds that indicate the coming storm. But they are not the thing to discern as the final sign. Wars, political, civil unrest are the gathering clouds. 
not the immediate sign of judgment. Verse 10, Then he said to them, Nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom. That is, wars, in a, they're a constant in a fallen world. And only a rumbling precursor of the final judgment. This rumbling is also witnessed in the physical universe, which groans for its own redemption, verse 11. There will be great earthquakes and famines and pestilences in various places and fearful events and great signs from heaven. The signs from heaven tips us off to the fact that there is a sign that is evidenced in the physical universe. And I think in a general sense, we see those signs going on around us. The tsunami of recent days and the earthquakes of a couple years ago in Asia and on and on the disasters go. It, we must remember this is, these are not just accounts of human interest. Isn't it amazing how many people died? Isn't it amazing how much money it's going to take to restore? What is it that we can do? These are all vital questions and, and points of interest. But we must remember that when the physical universe is showing these disasters, it's the groanings of its desire to be redeemed. And it's an evidence that this world is a place of destruction and a place of, of judgment ultimately. They're just the rumblings, the gathering storm. Before Jesus addresses now the specific signs of Jerusalem's judgment, he prepares his followers for life in a fallen world where Jesus' name is not honored. He's talked about, to them about the gathering clouds. Now he says, here's what life is going to be for you. Verse 12, put yourself in their sandals. Jesus keeps saying he's going to die. They don't get it, they're not realizing it, understanding it, but he keeps saying he's going away. And now he's talking to them about what it's going to be like when he's gone. Verse 12, but before all this, they will lay hands on you and persecute you. They will deliver you to synagogues and prisons, and you will be brought before kings and governors and on account, and all on account of my name. This world is hostile to the concept of Christ's lordship and will take out its hostility toward Jesus on his followers. Jesus assures his disciples that they will be prosecuted by religious and civil authorities for their faith in Jesus Christ. We need to get this principle firmly in our minds. Persecution of believers is normal. That's normal. When unbelievers are tolerant of Christians, it's abnormal. It's a unique privilege and time. The good side of this harsh reality is verse 13. This will result in your being witnesses to them. That is, persecution will provide a unique opportunity for believers to testify for Jesus before the prosecutors. Jesus follows that observation with instructions as to how they should handle prosecution. Believe me, they're listening. This might be a little tough for us to listen to because it doesn't seem to apply to us directly, but think about it. He's saying you are going to be brought before authorities, religious and civil, Jewish and Gentile. Here's what you're going to do as you come into their presence. Verse 14, But make up your mind not to worry beforehand how you will defend yourselves. For I will give you words and wisdom that none of your adversaries will be able to resist or contradict. I'll give you eloquence, and I will give you skill as to what to say. Don't spend the night before writing out notes on how you're going to defend yourself. Don't work on your speech. It has nothing to do with sermons. Some pastors have appealed to that from time to time, that God will give me what to say as I come into the pulpit. And some of you have reported those stories of pastors who have switched their sermon topic on the way up the steps to the uh, pulpit. That's got nothing to do with this passage of Scripture. It's nothing to do with if you are brought before authorities and are sued by your neighbor or something. 
He's talking here specifically about persecution. In that event, as you come before the authorities, don't sweat the details of your speech. Spend the night in prison before praying. Draw close to me. I'll tell you what to say in that moment. It's a great word of assurance. And of course, it's going to come through the presence of the Spirit of God as he is given by Jesus soon. Verse 16. Sadly, the religious and civil authorities will not be the only ones to oppress them. Verse 16, you will be betrayed even by parents, brothers, relatives, and friends, and they will put some of you to death. This is a grim reminder that we live in a world that is hostile to the ways of Jesus Christ. We marvel in this country at how unfair the secular culture is toward Christians, and they are. There are things said in the media, written in the media today, you could never say about any other group of Christians. And if you did, you'd be prosecuted for it. But it's said all the time about believers in Jesus Christ. Now there's a reason for us to marvel when we consider our nation's history. But let's not marvel overly much. Persecution is normal. There is a resistance to the Lordship of Jesus Christ at every level of this culture and every other culture on earth. We must never forget that as we await the return of Jesus. Persecution is normal. Tolerance is abnormal. Yet despite this grim advice, Jesus assures his followers. I mean, think of what they've just heard. Your family members are going to turn you into the authorities. And some of you will be put to death. Remember, this is Messiah talking. This is the one who can still the storm and feed the thousands. This is the one with the great wisdom that can undo any attack. This is their Jesus. And he's saying, evil is going to raise its head and rage against you. And some of you will die. Here's the hope, verse 18. But not a hair of your head will perish. By standing firm, you will gain life. There are people so bent against the Bible that they actually say here that Luke contradicts himself and just put these two different sources together at this place and didn't realize that he has just dramatically contradicted himself. Verse 16 says, some of you will be put to death. And verse 18 says, not a hair of your head will perish. And Lucas just didn't realize he made a mistake there. Lucas showed us throughout this book, and anybody who reads it with any, care, with any care will realize that he is one tremendous writer. There is not a detail in this book out of place. Luke didn't pick this up here because... One of his kids interrupted him while he was writing one night, and he forgot what he had just said. They go together. You will die, but not a hair of your head will fall. What does Jesus mean? I think it's a promise. It doesn't conflict with verse 16. But he's saying that though your persecutors may kill your body. Did you hear it in Martin this morning? The body they may kill Though they may kill your body, God will receive your soul. And in the end, your body will be resurrected. So in the end, not a hair of your head will perish. Rest in me. Your family may kill you. The authorities may kill you. Everybody you know and trust may turn against you because of my name. Don't worry. Hold on. Not a hair of your head will perish. By standing firm, you will gain life. I think it's a reference to salvation, ultimately. You will be rescued. You will come into the presence of God. You won't perish. How different this is. I, I, this is a little editorial comment, but how different this is. Isn't that what we see 
in terrorism today and radical Islam. You will enter into the presence of God as you blow your body apart and kill all kinds of people on your way down. Jesus says you open your arms and you love your persecutors and you lay down your life for them. In the teachings of the terrorists of our day, all kinds of people die and the more you bring down with you, the higher your reward in heaven. In Jesus' teaching, one person dies. That's you. In love, you lay down your life for your enemies and you walk into the hands of a God who vindicates his people. Trust me, to the very end. Stand to the end. I'll take care of it. Jesus assures his readers. And now turns to their original question concerning the signs that will announce the destruction of Jerusalem. Verse 20. When you see Jerusalem being surrounded by armies, you will know that its desolation is near. Think of it. Jerusalem is the city of God. It's the place of divine favor. It does not fall except by decree of divine judgment. Because Israel will break covenant with God and crucify her Messiah, God will honor the covenant and destroy Israel as He has said. Think of Israel's history and the temple's history. We have Solomon's temple that's destroyed by the Babylonians, the Babylonian captivity. We have the references to the Shekinah glory, that great glorious presence of God in the temple that lifts from the temple and rests over the Mount of Olives and then dissipates into the heavens in Ezekiel. And we have then the temple rebuilt by Zerubbabel, and we have then the temple desecrated by Antiochus' four epiphanies who forced the Jews to offer swine on the altar and placed a statue of Zeus on the altar of burnt offering, fulfilling Daniel 9.27 and 11.31. This place matters in God's history. What goes on here is always an evidence of divine favor or divine disfavor. There is a story that's always going on in the temple. And this temple, says Jesus, will again be destroyed. Why? Because the same God is running history. The same God that led to its first destruction by the Babylonians. The same God who prophesied the uh, de desecration of the temple by Antiochus is the same God who is prophesying this temple will again fall. Because now... The people of God, Israel, have committed the ultimate sin. They have rejected their Messiah. There will be destruction. The specific sign that destruction is soon to fall on Jerusalem is that it will be surrounded by armies. The next time, Jesus is saying, essentially, the next time Jerusalem is surrounded by armies, you know that the temple will fall. That's your sign. And that's precisely what happened. Verse 21, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let those in the city get out, and let those in the country not enter the city. This applies to the end time, but here Luke is looking at AD 70. For this is the time of punishment in fulfillment of all that has been written. How dreadful it will be in those days for pregnant women and nursing mothers. There will be great distress in the land and wrath against this people. This is horrifying news. We cannot begin to imagine the destruction and the horror of this prophecy. Thirty years after this prophecy, Rome and Israel came to a place of irremediable conflict. Their relationship had never been pretty, but it came to a place of open war, and Rome raised up its head to squash Israel. There were several years of bitter conflict, and then, finally, Jerusalem itself was besieged. The people began cut off from the outside world to starve to death. And I read the words of one who lived through it, Josephus, who says this, Put yourself in Jerusalem, surrounded by the armies of Rome. Then did the famine widen its progress and devoured the people. 
by whole families. The upper rooms, that is the flat roofs of the houses, listen to this, they were full of women and children that were dying by famine. He tells later that mothers cooked their children and ate them to stay alive. The alleys of the city were full of dead bodies. First the elderly and then the younger. The children also and the young men wandered about in the marketplaces like shadows, like phantoms. All swelled with the famine, that is their stomachs were large and swollen with emptiness, not with food. And they fell down dead wherever their misery seized them. As for burying them, those that were sick themselves were not able to do it, and those that were hardy and well were deterred from doing it by the great multitude of those dead bodies. There were more dead than could be buried. And the uncertainty there was of how soon they should die themselves. Nobody cared to bury the dead because they knew it was only a matter of time and they'd be joining them. Famine works this way. Everybody's a little bit different. You get to a place where you begin to not care about food so much, and then there's a place of intense hunger in which you die within a very short time. And that day hits for different people. There were different body types and abilities and different access to food. And so people dropped at different times, but they couldn't even bury the dead in the city. Robbers they said, Josephus writes, were the only ones to break the silence. They would break into the homes of the dead, which were really now just nothing more than tombs, and laugh at stealing anything that they found there. Horrible, horrible time. Eventually the city walls were penetrated and all those strict commands were given not to harm the temple. It was torched and the soldiers toppled the stones, just as Jesus prophesied. Josephus writes that 100,000 Jews were taken captive. Notice the ver uh, verses we've just read. Or verse 24, we should go there, I guess, at this point. They will fall by the sword and will be taken as prisoners to all the nations. 100,000 Jews taken captive in the siege of Jerusalem. Over one million died. Now, scholars say there's no way Josephus' numbers are accurate, they're exaggerated, but it was obviously a horrifying, devastating period. Ironically, the conquering pagan Roman general Titus saw the magnificent stones of the temple, and you know what he said? This is a pagan general. He looked at those stones and he said this, it was none other than God who ejected the Jews. None other than God who ejected the Jews out of these fortifications. For what could the hands of men or any machines do toward overthrowing these towers? In faithfulness to his covenant, God had once again stretched his hand of judgment against Israel. We don't have time to go into Jesus' attitude about all of this. But if you wonder about that, just remember chapter 13 and chapter 19 as Jesus weeps over the city. Remember that that weeping in chapter 19 was when all of these pilgrims were surrounding him and cheering with all of their might and singing the praises of the Psalms to their conquering King and Messiah. In the midst of all of that joy and celebration, Jesus is weeping. This is not a destruction that bypasses the heart of God. This is the ugliness of sin and the only way out of it. Jesus weeps. The middle of verse 24, we find a very significant interpretive key to understanding these end times. As he talks about the judgment of Jerusalem, he says then, verse 24, Jerusalem will be trampled on by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. From the fall of Jerusalem 
Until this day, Gentiles have had a controlling presence in the holy city. From the time Israel rejected Messiah and the temple was destroyed to the second coming of Christ is referred to in salvation history as the times of the Gentiles. God has not abandoned His love for Israel, but Israel has been largely set aside for the time as God now works through Gentile nations and indeed is working to redeem the Gentiles. Romans chapter 9 through 11, particularly chapter 11. These chapters of Romans indicate that during this time, Gentiles are God's primary target for salvation, but the phrase, times of the Gentiles, marks a definable period of salvation history. There are some interpreters who say the times of the Gentiles go on into eternity. They don't. There is a, the phrase here only makes sense if this times of the Gentiles has a terminal point. The idea is here then that Israel will be restored to the holy city. Luke now turns to that future day. You think A.D. 70 was rough. When God comes to restore Israel to, in Jerusalem again and to establish again the millennial kingdom, it will really get rough. Read the book of Revelation. And you can get that side of things. But the disciples did not at this time see that distinction between 70 A.D. and these end time events. But Jesus goes there and they'll get it later. And certainly now as his people having seen 70 A.D. and realizing that Jesus did not come back to establish his throne in Jerusalem at that point, we understand that he speaks here of a, his second coming and the end of time. Verse 25. There will be signs in the sun, moon, and stars. On the earth, nations will be in anguish and perplexity at the roaring and tossing of the sea. Men will faint from terror, apprehensive of what is coming on the earth, and the heavenly bodies will be shaken. We cannot be sure how literal all of this is. What is obvious to us, however... I should add here that sometimes this type of figurative speech is common in apocalyptic literature. We don't know precisely what this will look like, how literal this will be, but what is quite clear is that these will be days of great upheaval. Verse 27, at that time, he gives the signs, at that time they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. Christ's first coming was in humility and weakness. He came as a servant to seek and to save the lost. He did not come to judge the world, but that the world through Him might be saved. He came to bear divine judgment, not to render it. But when history completes its winding course to the end of the age, Jesus will return to earth. And this time he will come in power and great glory to rescue his people, to establish his kingdom, and to bring judgment on those in rebellion. Final and complete judgment. There will be a, a consummating act at the end of the millennium, but he will come at this point and establish his rule on earth, and all will worship the lordship of Jesus Christ until the end of the millennium, when the rebellion will show its head for one final time. Verse 28, when these things begin to take place, notice what he says here, you can catch this, this is, this is unique. When these things begin to take place, stand up and lift up your heads, because your redemption is drawing near. What did he say in verse 21? Run. When you see Jerusalem surrounded by these armies, run. When you see these events and the Son of God coming back, lift up your heads. Your redemption has come. Christ will come again. Will we be ready? This is what he says to his followers. He gives a parable now of the right mindset of his people. He told them this parable, verse 29, Look at the fig tree and all the trees. When they sprout leaves, you can see for yourselves and know that summer is near. Even so, when you see these things happening, you know that the kingdom of God is near. That is, when the Son of God comes back, all of these signs, and the Son of God returns, you can know that the kingdom will be established shortly. 
The certainty of these events is assured in verses 32 and 33. I tell you the truth, this generation will certainly not pass away until all these things have happened. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. This generation has occasioned all kinds of debate. If all these things refers to the fall of Jerusalem and to the second coming, then Jesus may mean that the generation listening to him is, will not pass away until these things begin. That is, the fall of A.D. 70 will take place within one generation. In other words, the fall of Jerusalem is so integrally linked with the final judgment and Christ's second coming that experiencing the first is as good as experiencing the second. All of this will be fulfilled. That's a little bit difficult with the phrasing here. And so I think all things refers perhaps just to the second coming of Christ. And back to verse 25. In other words, those who see these signs, and verse 26 and verse 27, those who see the Son of Man coming, that generation will not pass away before the kingdom is established. In other words, it will be established quickly within a generation. You don't need to worry that it will take a long time for Jesus to gain authority and rule from Jerusalem. This generation, this generation that sees the Son return, will not pass away before He reigns in His kingdom. What does this all mean to us? So what? What does it mean to us as we think about this? I hope there's a, a, a certain level of intrigue and interest in what is going to happen and how Jesus sees the future and lays it out for us. But this is not eschatology, the end times and last things and prophecy is not meant to simply entertain us. Isn't that interesting to know what's going to happen? In fact, I think that there are some Christians who get so much into prophecy because they really don't ever want to think about their life. They just want to think about what's coming in the future because there's all kinds of skeletons in the closet they don't want to clear out and so they become experts at prophecy and never think about their own heart. Jesus never taught that way. Prophecy always, eschatology always is intended to change our lives. To change the way that we live. And this is what Jesus teaches. He calls us to have the proper mindset, verse 34. Notice what He says. Be careful or your hearts will be weighed down with dissipation, drunkenness, and the anxieties of life. And that day will close on you unexpectedly like a trap. Be careful, he says, or give attention to yourself. Give heed. Wake up, says Jesus. There is a danger here. The danger is on the one hand being weighed down by escapist pleasures. They are everywhere in this culture. Escapist pleasures. Don't be weighed down by dissipation, he says. It describes a hangover after a night of carousing. Drunkenness. Alcohol is intended to calm the nerves, to release the inhibitions, to provide a momentary respite from the trials of life, but it can ironically weigh a person down. It can numb you to reality. Don't be weighed down by escapist pleasures. And we could add a whole list of others. Don't let that happen. On the other hand, there's a danger, and that's to be weighed down by the anxieties of life. Notice what he says there. Verse 34. The anxieties of life, that day will close on you unexpectedly like a trap if you're weighed down like this. If our focus is not right, if we fail to walk by faith in the promises of God, the daily grind will weigh us down and steal our awareness of Christ's approaching return. That's dangerous. We must keep our thoughts focused on what is really happening in this world. We can get so taken up by the worries of what's going on in my life that I fail to see what God is doing in the big picture. Don't let that happen. Jesus consistently called his people to exercise watchfulness. We're not to let anything depress our attention to the coming of Christ. He repeats that theme in verse 36 where he says, Be always on the watch. 
and pray that you may be able to escape all that is about to happen and that you may be able to stand before the Son of Man. Now his wording, his, his instruction here is specifically to those who are facing the destruction of, in AD, AD 70. And his wording is specifically to those who are in a time of tribulation, in a time of difficulty at the end of time as they await the return of Christ and his second coming. And so in some respects, this is not directly applicable to us, but it is obviously generally applicable. Do we have a watchful spirit? Are we looking to the return of our Savior? Do we anticipate the ending of time? Do we live as if we're going to lose all the things that we have? And it's not going to matter. Do we live that way? The call to us here is strong, it is pointed, and it is very applicable to American Christians. Don't get wrapped up in the things of this world. Don't get weighed down. Travel light. Keep your eye fixed on the goal. Keep walking. And you know what? To the prophecy buffs, I don't know that we have any of those here that are over the edge with that by any means, but I say it to whomever it applies. To the prophecy buffs, don't get all taken up with when Jesus is coming back. He consistently steers us away from that. In fact, in Matthew, he says, I don't even know the time when I'm coming back. God the Father had limited the knowledge of Christ at that point to not even be able to say, I know when I'm coming back. It's not about when Jesus is coming back that matters. It's about being ready to stand before Him. That's what matters. And so to do that, we need to realize that the history of the universe is a story in which Jesus Christ is being vindicated. The sovereign God is steering the course of human and natural history to a place of submission to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. This story will be filled with tragedy. It will be filled with heartache. It will be filled with judgment as Jesus stamps out sin and rebellion on this earth. But in the end, it will be a glorious story of redemption. Are you on this page? Are you following the history of God? Do you see the world from this perspective? And yes, the big question, are you ready yourself to stand before Jesus Christ? There will be cosmic implications to your answer. Will you be able to stand before him with joy and confidence? Listen to the words of the Apostle Paul to Titus, which are so fitting here, I think, at this point. For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age while we wait for the blessed hope, the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. While we wait for the blessed hope, purify your heart. Be ready to stand before Jesus Christ. Let me say to anyone who does not have that confidence, we're not talking about fairy tales here. You will stand before Jesus Christ. If that causes you fear, if that causes you apathy, you need to understand that you're not going to stand before Jesus Christ on your own merits, your own goodness, and the things that you do. It'll never stand up. I'd be like you going to that big 67-foot ledge of rock at the base of the temple and saying, I can push this over in my own strength. You're not even going to budget. You cannot stand before the glory of God in your own merit. But there's the glorious truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. He will give to you as a gift His righteousness. 
if in faith you trust that he died in your place to pay the penalty of your sin and rose from the dead in victory over death. He will give you his righteousness and save you so that you can stand before God on the merits of Jesus, not on your own. That gift he holds out to you. If you receive it, then you can look up and know that your redemption is pending. If you reject it, it's going to be worse for you than it was for the Jews in 70 AD. Jesus told us this. For those of us who have embraced that, may we listen to Paul's words to Titus and be eager to do what is good as we purify our hearts watching for the return of Jesus Christ. He came the first time. And he says here that heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. He will be back. And everything will be made right. The issue is, for each one of us, are you on his side? Or are you resisting him? There's a day when it will be over. We must get on his side. And he calls us to do that with open arms. Today, Jesus weeps over sinners. There's a day when he will become the judge. Are you on his side? Let's bow for prayer. So we ask the Lord's help. We filter these somber and yet encouraging truths. Our Father God, we come into your presence, not with pride, not with a sense that we know it all and we have it figured out and we are the special people of God, not in ourselves. We thank you that your grace, your electing love has made us that. But I pray, Father, that by your grace we might realize in humility what grace is ours. How you have loved us and granted us salvation in Jesus for any that have not entered into that relationship. I pray that you will help them to not be weighed down by religion and weighed down by expectations of others and weighed down by their own sins, but that they would in simple faith embrace the gospel of Jesus Christ and receive his righteousness. May we be able to lift up our heads and see that our redemption is near. We pray for the time of Jesus' coming and pray that you'll help us to avoid the friendly fire and your people to avoid the friendly fire who are in that cataclysmic event. But we do ask that the consummation would come so that this world is set right. We pray this in the name of our Savior and for his glory. Amen.